attractions to the same sex, unprocessed childhood trauma, porn addiction. Our marriage seemed doomed. If marriage is primarily about attraction, it was. If marriage is a gospel picture, it absolutely wasn't. An impossible marriage, what our mixed orientation marriage has taught us about love in the gospel, a book endorsed by Matt and Lauren Chandler, Ann Voskamp, Gabe Lyons, and Marvin Williams is now available for pre-order. Find it at impossiblemarriage.com. Hello and welcome to the Hole in My Heart podcast. This is episode 142, Impossible Marriage Moments, when past trauma affects today. Hello, welcome. I am your host, Lori Krieg, and I am with my favorite licensed therapist, Argyle expert, and my husband, Matt Krieg. Hello. I took out one of your descriptors today, the carpenter. Yeah, I don't know, I just wasn't feeling it today. You are a carpenter still. But we, of course, have the most professional radio voice among us, producer Steve. Hi, guys. I was trying to mimic your voice there. That's cool. Thank you. <laughs> guys. I want to let you know something before we get rolling. We have a workshop coming up. Do you know this? It's a virtual one because everything is virtual these days. But if you like our content and our weirdness, which you can get a little bonus uh, moment of weirdness if you watch this on the old YouTube. Uh, But we are diving into specifically more marriage stuff. And in this workshop to pinpoint where your marriage is doing well. I really hope that you go to this workshop for those of you who attend and you're not like, oh boy, I just hate everything about myself and we're failing at marriage. But you go and you see where you're actually doing well, but you can also see areas of opportunity, but not just to be one because that's how marriage is, but to be unified and one to cultivate this beautiful fruit that God wants to produce uniquely through your marriage. If you want to find out more about it, go to impossiblemarriage.com. It's October 24 and we are looking forward to seeing you on the old internets. Next up, I have scripted that I'm holding in my hand our Impossible Marriage book, but we keep giving them away. But our Impossible Marriage book is out for pre-order. And if you pre-ordered, it's out for you. You probably have it if you got it through InterVarsity in particular. Um, But we are starting a series today, three episodes, where we are doing a little deep dive of this book. And we're going to talk about different themes in it. We have Dr. Dave Beach this week, Greg Coles next week, and Matt Craig. I hear he's pretty smart and fancy. Uh, The third week, and we're going to talk about different themes. We're going to talk about pornography, addiction. We're going to talk about idolatry of sex and marriage. We're going to talk about singleness. And today we're talking about when trauma affects a marriage and a life, if you're single or married. And I have an old friend who is actually in the book. And I'm going to read a little bit of it. And that is Dr. David Beach. Dave, welcome. Thank you, Lori. It's a pleasure to be here and see what you do. Yeah, man. I'm probably going to cry at some point in this episode. Just wait for it. But before I start crying, let's get to know Dr. David Beach. Uh, He is a 60-something therapist and writer. We got two therapists in the house, so Steve and I are going to try and hold it together. (laughs) Whenever we have the double therapists, we're a little like, (laughs) don't look into the cracks in my soul. (laughs) And then they are, but then they're going to be kind about it. Okay, but he has most recently served as the mental health director at the Johnson Brower Foundation, and there he provided trauma counseling 
for combat veterans and first responders and co-led She Will Stay, which we're going to probably be referencing that book. We will have a link to it in the episode notes. But it is a program for wives, partners of combat veterans and first responders. He is a teacher. He's taught courses such as psychopathology, research and statistics and spiritual formation, which is where Matt Craig and I met was in a class that Dave and his wife taught, Cynthia Beach. And I remember right where Matt sat, right behind me and to the left. And what drew me to him was that he was not creepy. And that's the start of our long romance. Okay, gonna keep talking about this. If this mic was not attached to this arm, I would drop it right now. (laughs) Because that was totally mic drop, Matt. Totes and goats. That's how it happened. Uh, But he has won awards as a teacher and for writing curriculum. His perennial interests are at the intersections of theology, psychology, sociology, and what it means to be human. I think we could probably do like literally a whole like season, probably a whole season with Dave just like harvesting his brains and his brilliance. Uh, But he's also authored the award-winning Following the Man of Sorrows, A Theology of Suffering for Spiritual Formation. We talk about suffering a lot here. Co-authored the Essential Bible Companion to the Psalms and contributed to the Hope in the Morning. So M-O-U-R, Hope in the Morning Bible. I think we're going to hear a little bit more why this guy likes lament, which so do we. Hmm. But first, let's go to the question of the week, because we need to. We want to get to know you, the audience, better. And our guest, Dr. David Beach. Dave, here's a question. If you've ever dressed up for something like Halloween, or if you're our friend for more than a few minutes, you're going to get invited to some sort of party where we'll make you throw on ridiculous costumes and go around the town, literally. Uh, what was your best costume? I have a hippie biker uh outfit it's a basically a black hat with like a willie nelson wig (laughs) and back then i had a gray beard yeah and i wore sunglasses i wore it sunday morning to church and i walked in with cynthia she was dressed normally and i'm this strange looking guy willie nelson yeah yeah i can't remember if i had it in a ponytail or (laughs) i walked in with cynthia and stepped away from her just to get a cup of coffee at the cool coffee bar there. And the pastor was by the entrance to the sanctuary and said hello to Cynthia and then said, where's Dave? <laughs> and that was just quite a hoot. And I sat through the whole service with that on, just enjoying the looks that I got. It was kind of a uh, social psych experience. You just did it for kicks? Yeah, just for kicks. <gasps> uh, Oh, man. Well, I kept it on afterwards, and we went to the video store in Lowell. They don't have it anymore. Oh, no. Quite passe. Oh, yeah. What's a video? It was interesting how people would just kind of give me a lot more room (laughs) in the aisle. It's like, who is this guy? It's Willie Nelson. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, it is fun. Tell my friends who think I'm only weird and not fun weird. (laughs) Okay. Matt Creek, what audience members answer stood out to you? I really liked what Callie said. One year for Halloween, our entire family dressed up as the Incredibles. My husband was Mr. Incredible. I was Elastigirl. Our oldest daughter was Violet. Our oldest son was Dash. Our youngest baby dressed up as Jack-Jack. And our sassy five-year-old, we dressed all in black. We gave her big fake glasses, and she walked around as Edna Mode. 
Her catchphrase was, no capes, darling. Edna. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. If you guys don't know The Incredibles, just watch it. It's worth your time. Yeah, completely amazing. I wish we could do that. But for me, I know that my best outfit was probably, we were about a year married and we dressed up and went to a Harry Potter themed party. Yeah. And so I had the, the lightning scar on my forehead and that is homage to how your little sister Angela would always refer to me as Harry Potter. Yeah. She'd be like, mm. you going out with Harry Potter again? <laughs> now she loves you. Don't listen to this, Ange. Love you. <laughs> Steve, which, uh, which audience? Yeah, I, I really liked this comment from Victor. So I have not actually dressed up in costumes much in my life, only because when I was growing up, Halloween was wicked, along with pretty much anything else. Um, but one time, one of my wife and I... Uh, best couple friends who consists of an English professor and a music professor held a characters from literature costume party. Some people like really went all out. They can fancy elaborate costumes. Um, but I decided to go in a little bit more of a low budget and fun to make direction. I've always loved the book Robinson Crusoe. So I just went and got some cheap thrift store clothes and then I got to cut them up and tear them up and cake them all in dirt. I didn't even have to do my hair. It was great. Yeah. Totally makes sense. And sadly, I have to say for myself, I haven't really done a lot of dress up in adulthood. Uh, my favorite costumes are like from Halloween's when I was a little kid. Oh, yeah. And my mom was a really good, like creative, low budget costume maker. So she did one year I was a pirate after we'd been to Disney and gone to the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. Um, and I think there was an actual hook and everything. And another one was I was Han Solo one year. So those are the big costumes I recall. Han <laughs> Solo. Love it. <laughs> um, I appreciated this from Sarah on Facebook, which, guys, if you want to answer the question of the week, I try my best to post it to all my socials. But TBH, to be honest, I forget sometimes to post it everywhere. So mostly Facebook. And if you are part of our Hole in My Heart podcast Facebook group, uh, I will post it there and on Instagram. So Sarah said this on Facebook. I do love dressing up for different occasions. My favorite costume, though, probably was the simplest one to make. I pinned a bunch of Smarties candies to my pants because naturally I am Miss Smarty Pants. Hey, like a good pun, Hannah. On a costume. Um, I really like dressing up. I didn't really realize this till I was a grown up. And my life was real serious. And <laughs> I was like, let's do something weird. So our birthday parties, as I've alluded to, we tend to pick a theme and dress up and send our friends all around town for a scavenger hunt. Uh, so I'll just pick last year. I dressed up like Carmen Sandiego. <laughs> and it was awesome. <laughs> I just get like you, Dave. I get a good joy out of people being like, what are you doing? And I'm like, doesn't matter. I'm having fun. Okay, Dave, I don't know if you ever listened to our podcast before, but if you are a new listener or if you're a new guest on the podcast, we ask every guest this set of questions, which it is this. If the gospel is, I am more loved than I imagine and yet more sinful than I believe, when was the gospel first good news for you and how is it still? Well, I used to prefer the miraculous point in time salvation stories because I thought mine was just it was too long and drawn out and mm. it was more of a journey than it was some uh, point in time yeah so I'm going to tell about a I'm going to talk about a journey 
I grew up in a pastor's home, and the gospel was just every Sunday, the conservative evangelical church, so altar calls, and my dad was the preacher, and he was always around at home when I, when I was a kid. So at about age five, I made a decision because it just seemed like the thing to do. And then I was baptized and thought that I was in. And then a lot of things happened um, that weren't so nice, and we don't need to talk about those tonight. Um, But my dad resigned from the church and ministry when I was about 17. And I took off for lands unknown just to explore the world Hmm. and after about five years I really felt like Jesus was inviting me back and that was probably when I met Jesus friend of sinners and began to change my life I started running again so I could quit smoking Mm. uh, quit drinking and I have a 40-year sobriety coin in mm-hmm. my pocket that it just reminds me. So that's when I met Jesus, friend of sinners. And then I was, I was just uncertain how to tell my story of salvation because I wasn't sure if I had recommitted my life at 22 yeah, or if that was actually my salvation. And that bothered me because I thought we were supposed to know, you know, the moment, right? Right. But then I decided that it probably was 22, but I was never sure. And then it dawned on me a little later that if it was 22 and I was baptized at six, I probably need to be baptized again. So I called Hmm. my dad and asked him if he would baptize me. And he said yes. So that very same day, it was on a Sunday afternoon, we went to the Flat River by the Boy Scout cabin and waded out into the river. And my dad rebaptized me or baptized me for the first time. I'm still not entirely sure. But after my decision there at 22, people in my life began to die. And Mm. so... For some reason, I associated faith with hard things. Mm. Um, My brother died shortly after. All my grandparents, an aunt and an uncle, uh, a couple good friends, and then finally my wife, my first wife. And that's when I met Jesus, the man of sorrows. Mm. And... That's the Jesus that I really didn't like. I I didn't know a whole lot about him, but that was really when I felt loved. And it's not that I didn't feel love before. It's just that moment when I felt Jesus was with me mm. in the darkest time. Why didn't you like him? Why didn't you? You said you didn't like him. 
No, well, I was taught these fun little choruses like, I'm in right out, right up, right down, right happy all the time. Or I'm H-A-P-P-Y, happy all the T-I-M-E time. Nope. Or in, uh, it is summertime in my heart. It is summertime. So I learned all these songs. And then that last one, it says, even in the wintertime, it's summer in my heart. And now I think, wow, we were in Michigan singing that song. (laughs) Um, And when it's winter in Michigan, it's winter. So there was... Just a denial, I think. Yeah. And if someone was sad, it's like they were not they were not as good of a Christian. One old hymn says, Carry your cross with a smile. Someone to Jesus you may beguile. <clears throat> good grief. You yeah. just shove that pain right on down, like directly. Yeah. Wow. I thought about that when you were in your book, I was reading about the piano, the song on the piano, Singing in the Rain. Mm. I wondered. Mm-hmm. Yep, Singing in the Rain. Oof. So yeah. how do you still need the good news of the gospel? Well, I still need Jesus' friend of sinners. Yeah. Because even though I'm a pretty mild-mannered guy, there's a, a layer of anger um, deep down, yeah, the way people are treated and yeah. um, abuse of so many kinds mm. that shows up in pathologies. So, mm. yeah. um, so that so you need the gospel as you're just working with people and working with your own anger to like channel it toward. I don't know. Yes goodness good righteous anger and healing yeah especially man of sorrows um i still don't like so much suffering and sadness but i really think that's what jesus wanted to produce in me Mm -hmm. to create in my heart my life Mm -hmm. for my calling um Maybe it's unique, but I I tend to think that it's a really significant part of spiritual formation, mm-hmm. and it comes in the later stages uh, for a lot of people. For me, it came early. Mm. I'm like already just like fall on the ground and just cry for a little while, like a good cry. I could tell you're a gifted therapist. Also experienced it. So thank you for sharing that. Um, good question. Well, good, beautiful answer. Um, guys, so I alluded to talking about our book, Impossible Marriage, and one of the main, uh, a theme in it is trauma affecting a marriage and affecting a person. Um, and uh, just to give you guys some heads up, if you haven't been traveling with this podcast, because I've talked about it on this podcast, but um, when our oldest daughter turned the age of when I experienced a sexual assault incident. So I was triggered when she turned the age, when it happened to me. And that's not uncommon. I'm sure you two therapists could just tell me all about that. Uh, but what, what made it extra, it felt like, at least in our marriage, was that it magnetized to my sexual attractions toward women and made having any physical connection to Matt impossible. 
and it made exiting our heterosexual marriage very tempting. Uh, the remembered trauma made Matt seem scary and the attractions made him seem repulsive. So like that old friendship that would lead to attraction, it was just like there was no friendship. It was just very icy cold in our home. And some of this was the effects of trauma. But Dave, before this showed up in our marriage, you and your wife, Cynthia, were critical to the first round of my surrendering my sexuality to Jesus. So I just have so much mm. gratitude in my heart. And I know we've touched base over the years, but just thank you. You guys, they were the first soft, uh, I'm going to cry, but they were the first soft landing space when I was full of so much self-hatred and shame and uh, Cynthia was a professor. She was my favorite professor. <laughs> like, um, and I don't know why I just felt like I could trust her. And then, uh, I got connected to her husband. So I'm actually going to read for a second, a section from our book. I hope that's okay guys, but just to kind of give you a flavor of it, but just to get to know Dave a little bit more, and then we're going to ask him some questions. So now remember we talked about meeting Matt. We'll start there. Matt had sat behind me in my favorite class, spiritual formation. As an English major, I didn't need it, but the wife of the couple who co-taught the course was my mentor and counselor, and I wanted to hear more from them. So he and he was my counselor, and she was my mentor. They were also two of the only people who knew about my double life, Christian campus leader by day, secretly wrestling with, with same-sex desires by night. I shared with the wife, Cynthia, first, which is Dave's wife. We've alluded to her. I could not look into her eyes as tears rolled down my cheeks. I suck, I said over and over while sharing the story of the sexual relationship with my best friend. I felt so much shame over what I was doing, and the only response that felt right was self-hatred. The pervasive, shameful stickiness dripped off of me and onto the floor. What I was doing wasn't only wrong. Who I was felt completely wrong. Perhaps if I hated myself enough, somehow that would rid me both of my shame and what I believe to be my shameful attractions. But Cynthia didn't let me verbally eviscerate myself. She didn't even encourage looking down. Instead, oh man, I remember this, her like tipping her head to be like, can I catch your eye? <laughs> Instead, she caught my eye. Lori, is that your name? I suck. I didn't understand her question. Of course it's who I am. I was irrevocably broken, a failure of a Christian. That was my identity. In my mind, good Christians, especially good Christian girls, didn't wrestle with their sexuality, at least not in this form. Good Christian girls wrestled with pride, anxiety, and perhaps trying to have sex with their boyfriends. Many times I wished I had their normal, quote unquote, girl problems that could be shared during small group prayer requests which I don't want to belittle those at all. Cynthia did not utter a word of shame toward me. She did not point out Bible passages that explore same-sex sexual relationships. Her eyes did not flicker with secret fear. She was peaceful and kind. And when I mentioned suicidal ideation, she offered me her husband's card for counseling. And she just offered it. Guys, this is a side note for Lori talking now. She never, she wasn't like, oh, you, oh goodness, you need to go see him. And she wasn't, it wasn't, here's a little teaching moment, when she heard my same-sex desires, it was the suicidality that made her say, maybe talk to someone. I met with Dave for months. Many times I rolled out of bed with my girlfriend, drove to his office, and walked head down into our appointment. He did not clobber me over the head with verses either. 
He never pointed me toward a need to be straight. He was patient and gentle, and any time I asked for a bill, his eyes twinkled as he remarked, Oh, you haven't gotten one yet. Hmm, I'll have to look into it. He gave me thousands of dollars of therapy for free. That's where I'm going to pause, and I'm going to ask you, I don't know if I've ever asked you this, Dave. Why did you do that? Why were you so nice to me? I was like this crazy girl. <laughs> so I was a hot mess. Why'd you give me so much for free, Dave? Okay. I'll answer your question if you'll answer one of mine. Okay. And I know this is a hypothetical and retrospective, but yeah. what would you have done if I didn't? What would you have done if I had billed you my full rate? And you were a college student. And I couldn't, I didn't feel like I could tell my parents. Yeah. I was quite sure you wouldn't. No. I don't, I probably, I mean, I know it's high. I, I would have stopped going. Yeah. So. Yeah, I don't know where I'd be today. I know, it's a hypothetical. Some yeah. people don't do hypotheticals, but. I'll do them. Um. The reason I did is when I felt the calling to this field, this was a midlife career switch for me to get into counseling because yeah. of um, the valley. If I'll just call it the valley. And um, my deep impression was that the people that needed counseling the most could afford it the least. Mm. And usually because of that, wouldn't ask for help um, either because they were too proud to take charity or, or whatever. So I made a deal with God. I said, okay, I will commit to always carrying pro bono clients mm. if you will have my back, if you will keep the lights on. And so you were, I, I forget what was happening in my career when you came into my office the first time, but it just worked out perfectly. You were one of my pro bono clients. Well, thank you. I like, I'm going to sit with that hypothetical you threw back at me because truly I don't know where I'd be today. Like, and you, like you didn't have every answer you didn't have to but you were your withness which please listeners hear this with someone wrestling with trauma with sexuality with whatever being with them no matter the cost it, just thank you you're welcome so i mean if we fast forward in our story uh you know Lori, our second daughter was born and and then shortly after, it was it was when this this trauma really resurfaced in you. Um, but but Dave, if you can clarify or help us to clarify what what exactly is trauma and why does this thing that happened in the past tend to have a very visceral effect on our current current daily life? Yeah. Um, well, great questions, both of them, and. I want to start off by saying that there's a real mystery in this. There's a mystery in what it means to be human and to be traumatized. And 
I think it's because we're created in God's image and God is mysterious. So trauma is really difficult, in my opinion, to objectively define. Some would even go so far as to say that it, we probably should avoid trying to define it objectively. But I prefer really simple ones, more generic. So trauma is an actual or a perceived injury that somehow disrupts a person's ability to organize their life. Um, sometimes those effects show up right away, and it's obvious that something profound happened. Sometimes those effects can be delayed, or they can be latent, um, and that's, again, part of the mystery of it. Um, so more to the point of, uh, you know, when it shows up, I think was the second part of your question. Mm -hmm. I think for me, um, the effects of the accumulated trauma in my life didn't show up until, well, when my wife died, it felt like all kinds of prior things just piled on top of me. And that's when I was profoundly symptomatic and mm. people thought that um, I, may, I would never recover from my wife's death. But I think it was because I was constantly trying to fit everything back into my adolescent and childhood version of God, of myself. And I, I had a pretty happy childhood. I had a pretty pretty good life um i was a popular kid in high school things came easily you had the cool willie nelson hat i did <laughs> yeah so i kept trying to fit life back into that mold and to uh, more and more just pretend that i was that same person but inside um i really was feeling disrupted in my ability to organize myself, my life, and mm. have a healthy view of the future. So that may be why some people are really struggling right now during COVID. Like COVID isn't, I mean, it's tough for, and for some people it's terrible, but some of them it's, it's just squeezing what's already in there. Is that what you're seeing too, Dave? Yes. I think there's, um, some have named three, uh, layers of loss and grief, uh, complex grief. There's the loss of financial security, that the economy is okay, stable. And there's, for a lot of people, the loss of jobs. Mm -hmm. And then for some, there's the loss of a loved one, loss of their own health, a loss of a sense of safety, uh, which is huge. A loss of a sense of benevolence that there's some benevolent there's a god or hmm. um, our leaders are kind and wise and <laughs> so there's multiple layers that i think people are grieving okay so here i was i'm going to read another short section of the book this is the last one that i'll do this time around um but this piece is i just want the listeners to get a sense of those so a quarter of women at least 
have endured sexual assault. And there's statistics that one-sixth of men have to have endured sexual childhood trauma. And so... I don't, maybe it's just, I don't hear it. And I don't hear so much, like, how does a functioning adult, like, I'm very high functioning. And then there was this kick that happened where this, my memory got jogged. And I'm just going to read to you guys how it felt for me. So maybe we can um, empathize a little bit. This is on page 45, in case you guys want to read along if you got yours. Okay. The assault memory was still vague, but my fight-or-flight response to Matt had kicked into high gear. We had enjoyed a good evening of connecting relationally, and Matt was hopeful for some sort of physical connection. Before the resurfacing of this memory, this would likely have not been a problem. But not anymore. All he wanted was to embrace me. But after 30 seconds, I felt like a bucket at the top of a cliff. The memory kicked me, and I toppled into despair. Physically, I froze, turned away from Matt, and curled up into the fetal position. And that is, this is Lori just talking right now, that is how it felt. Like, I'm normal, 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 and then all of a sudden I'm triggered, and I am kicked down. Some people's response to trauma is fight. They hit back in rage at whoever's hurting them. For me, that would come later. At this time, my default was to flight. In the bed I shared with a person my subconscious perceived as evil and terrifying, I felt like I had nowhere to run except deeper into myself. I curled up, envisioning ripping off my skin. Again, high-functioning adult. To feel something other than my shuddering anger toward Matt. I fought digging my nails into my arms, which seemed like it would siphon off some of the overwhelming pain I felt inside. I stared at the second-story window, exit, leave, jump out. Those three exits circled my once-beloved window seat. It was the reason I wanted to purchase this house. I daydreamed of evenings I would journal while looking over the backyard sunset. I'd done it several times since we moved in, but now my daydreams were infused with thoughts of death. Lori, Matt whispered, concerned. Lori, where are you? He hardly touched my back as he beckoned to me from wherever my mind had gone. This was not the first or the last time it would happen. Dozens of incidents would follow. I could not talk. My jaw locked say something talk to him there were parts of my heart that wanted to i did love him i did want to be close to him in many ways but i literally couldn't the verbal processing part of my brain the broca's area had gone offline as my subconscious shifted from the present moment to the memory held in my body after several minutes i found a quiet voice and whispered i just want to go to sleep i pulled my mask over my eyes and drifted off into oblivion so dave what's happening fix me (laughs) Fix you. Just kidding. But you know, uh, what's what's yeah. going on? Like that really, I, I wasn't in a, like it didn't have to be checked in somewhere, but at times I felt like I needed to, you oh, know, like yeah. that I was really at times losing it. Yeah. So what, what was going on? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, one of the primary um, categories of symptoms for trauma, uh, three main ones, re-experiencing avoidance and experiencing some kind of threat so what's interesting about you your story right here is you're feeling all three Mm. i would suggest so you're re-experiencing something and then it says you you pull your sleep mask over your eyes and drift it off into oblivion that's the avoidance i just want to run huh Mm mm-hmm yeah. 
And this guy that you love, that you married, that you gave a vow to, feels like a threat. Mm. So, it, to me, this is hinting also at something that's uh, being bandied about. It's the complex PTSD, mm. where there's more of a disruption in self-organizing, an inability to regulate emotion. Yeah. And uh, a lot of negative self-talk, the shame. Um, I'm not making a diagnosis from the <laughs> distance here. I'm just <laughs> yeah. just shooting from the hip. Yes. Um, and that's all I was asking for. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, and, and I remember that, that scene that you read. I remember it clearly because I remember, yeah, barely as, I mean, as gently, as lightly as I possibly could. You know, trying to touch you enough to get your attention, but not enough to, to kind of further push you off that cliff that you describe. And, and just feeling like, I know exactly, I know cognitively as a counselor who has dealt with trauma, I know what is going on. But I feel powerless as, as a husband to... To, to make any difference. And, and honestly, like I, on, I, I felt like why the angry part of me was, why can't you be normal? Mm. And the, the non angry, like, but as a nine, I covered that, that over. <laughs> and as a counselor, I say, down. okay, I, I actually know what is happening, that, that you are being triggered and that my anger is, is, is selfish, but there is some, some very real sorrow underneath because as you described, I wanted connection. I wanted to embrace you that was something that would, I, I guess, foster a sense of safety in our relationship for me. Um, Which would have just shoved me right yeah, into and, a catatonic and so state. Here we are in a place where it's yeah. like what I what I feel like I need, what I feel like would be the biggest help for me is the thing that's pushing you off the cliff. And so yep. um, a lot of people in in a marriage where trauma is is just having such an effect, that, that is something that people would feel. And so, Dave... What would you say to to the spouse of someone who has just become very disorganized because of the trauma they've experienced, um, where it's not easy to continue to walk alongside, it's not easy to to try and stay connected to that person. Sometimes the easiest thing is just to emotionally distance and live a logistical life. But, but what would you say to someone who is trying to to be there trying to just stay connected. Mm -hmm. Well, I have a really good friend. He was my study buddy in my doctoral program, and he wrote his dissertation on this very thing, what it's like to be married to someone who is an adult survivor of childhood sexual abuse. And... There is something profound and quite different about that marriage mm. that often gets missed in traditional couples therapy. Mm. So I think we're dealing with something quite profound. And I know that in the latest iteration of the DSM, the DSM-5, there was an interest in kind of reducing the number of cases that would qualify as PTSD and... So some of the talk was that you would have to actually experience it or witness mm -hmm. it. And 
I think there's something about the oneness in a marriage that when you connect with someone else's heart and you feel their pain, even if it's just intuitive and implicit, you feel something that's quite disruptive. And so, I mean, I know you you labeled the anger that you felt uh, selfish. Oh, but, um, okay, I'm... Better not go to therapy here. Uh, oh, it's fine. You can, you can. <laughs> okay. Fix us. There's something just very raw and true mm-hmm. about you saying you were angry. Mm. And so to say it's selfish, I I think, wow, it, it just seems human. Mm. And so to the partner, um, I would say... Read my friend John's dissertation. But if you're not able to, then read this book that I just co-wrote for partners of trauma survivors. And it says a little bit about what's happening. First off, I think a lot of spouses are caught off guard. They may not understand trauma. I mean, Mm -hmm. you probably looked at that in your program. I'm guessing. Yeah. 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 So... You had an edge and an advantage, and it's still just blindsided. Oh, yeah, it still yeah. floored me. Yeah, so think about someone who they're not, you know, they they struggle with psychological terms, maybe. Um, this catches them completely off guard. They They don't understand the typical journey of someone who's a trauma survivor. So that's where we start right off in this the seven pillars of she will stay so the book he's talking about is called she will stay and it's called the seven pillars of she will stay so i've got my copy and Ah. yeah oh yeah that one i do have i think that one's in my backpack okay but it's a great book so you say you start off with what i start off we start off tara johnson brower the lady who founded she will stay just terrific testimony um Start off with a simple graph where the vertical axis is a joy-misery line or a joy-misery continuum. And that could easily be hope and despair or faith and doubt. And at any point in our life, we're somewhere on those continuums. Mm. We're sometimes joyful, sometimes miserable. Mm. We're very seldom inside out, right? Upright, downright, happy all the time. No. There are a few people that are like that, but I was not one of them. Anyway, the horizontal line is just a timeline, a lifeline. And um, if this was a TV show, I would just hold You can this. show it. Oh. And again, okay. you guys can find us on the old YouTube. There you yeah. go. Yeah. Okay. I'll hold you can it up hold it up. For you YouTube viewers. Okay. <laughs> but this is a typical disaster story Kurt Vonnegut's storyline the disaster story Mm -hmm. looks like a U with some flares on either end and you start off with an early normal trauma happens and there's a shattering shattering of it's called the shattering of the assumptive world where these assumptions you make about the world God yourself they're just shattered in this new piece of information or pieces of information you can't assimilate them into the old 
it's like you put a snow globe in your head and you populate it with all these things that you imagine. And then somebody just grabs it and throws it on the sidewalk and smashes it. And life no longer makes sense. Um, so then you slide down to the bottom of the U, and I call that the chaotic struggle to adapt. Most people just see symptoms, multiple symptoms, comorbidities, the nice psychological word. <laughs> but there's actually more going on. It's someone trying to adapt. So when you're laying there in bed with Matt, there's a part of you that is trying to adapt mm. to what's happening in the present, what's happening in the past. And it's just really difficult to assimilate um, in the present without some kind of rebuilding, reconstruction mm -hmm. of an assumptive world or forming some new, more gentle, more compassionate uh, parts of your life. And so what I would want to say most, though, to a spouse or a friend, even just a good friend, is what seems to be really important is that they have a person committed. Married, single, just a person committed. Um, it's just hugely important. And where this came home to me is there's a, there's a strange sounding book, The Boy That Was Raised as a Dog, hmm. written by Dr. Bruce Perry. And it's a disruptive, kind of disturbing book. It's about children who've experienced really profound trauma. And in one of the vignettes, he tells the story of kids that were rescued out of the Waco, Texas mm. compound, the Branch Davidians with David Koresh. And they were able to rescue, I think, over 20 kids. Uh, most of the people died, but they did get over 20 kids out. And Dr. Perry was in charge of these kids. He was in charge of a much bigger area, but particularly these kids. And he found out that they had been told if they talked to a counselor or the police or the FBI that David Koresh would kill their parents and kill the rest of their family. So, I mean, Bruce Perry's first go-to, I'm guessing, would have been counseling. But this was just extremely unique. So he made a decision not to put any of them in therapy, but to find foster homes where he was sure that there was a wise, compassionate, loving figure that these kids could at least have a chance to attach to and form a bond. Mm. And what he discovered was there's a direct positive correlation between the number of loving relationships that these kids had and growing out of that and recovering at least some semblance of normalcy. Mm. That... Mm. Sorry. Oh, it's good. That told me a lot. It tells me that the marriage or friendship or whatever loving attachment is the crucible for mm. a lot of 
a lot of raw stuff, but a lot of healing. Um, we're harmed in relationship and we're healed in relationship. Mm. So I can tell you from experience that isolating and withdrawing, which is what I wanted to do, mm-hmm. um, it just prolongs things. It and just prolongs things. Yeah, but the isolation, the withdrawing feels so safe oh, in the moment. It's an illusion, though, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It just prolongs us moving toward what we want way deep down that we're not yet ready to recognize. Mm. So I'm hearing some advice, like both for spouses, but, you know, maybe it's caregivers of someone who's gone through trauma, but, um, or therapists who are walking with people and friends, uh, just to not give up. Dave, you were huge. That was huge for you with me. Like, I'm here. Hmm. I'm still here. And you're not getting charged. (laughs) That was giant. Hmm. And... Matt, like for your, this, you know, the name of the, the book, Dave, she will stay. Matt, you stayed. You were, he will stay. And that was so huge for me that you didn't give up. And our friends, you guys, if you read our book, you'll see that just being there. They didn't have all the answers. And so that's huge. And for those of us on the traumatized side, which that's not our identity fire, but that's how we can maybe see how we are. Um, that isolation is, a, is an illusion. Is, or isolation is an illusion of safety and what we truly need, those, those core needs inside to be included and belong and to be seen, even if people don't get it perfect, is so huge. So... God did some good stuff in our marriage and we're still, when people are like, so how's your marriage now? We're like, we're still working on our metaphor. That's what we'll say. We're still working on oneness, whichever one is. Um, There's some major true uh, moments in the book that have lasting residual impact on our lives. But dude, Dave, the crappy part about Mm. trauma is you don't go back to your childhood's no traumatized self what you're talking about that disruptor what for people listening who you know maybe they've done the soul work like a lot rounds of soul work i think we just keep doing rounds don't we Mm -hmm. um like i have now and matt has you have dave steve still here he's he's done rounds of it but if we still feel the residual nature i don't can you speak to that like is it ever just gonna go back are we ever gonna get whole again i hope not Mm. Um, I used to, I used to hope that I could because I seemed to myself anyway, I seemed so much more successful when I was Mm. in high school, for instance, high school went really well for me. Mm. Um, the next five years, wow, it's like falling off a cliff, Mm. but I think this is just the nature of acquiring wisdom i mean solomon says with much wisdom there's much sorrow much suffering and Mm -hmm. one of the facets of jesus that i think brings us more compassion for others um, more wisdom is jesus man of sorrows where i like what c.s lewis says after his wife died um, I guess you can 
you probably guess why I love that book. <laughs> a Grief Observed. Yeah. Um, in my copy, it's on about page 55. It's all dog-eared. But he says, My idea of God is not divine. It needs to be shattered time after time. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a cost to pay if we try to cling to early notions about God, about self. Um, and I think that's pretty offensive to a lot of people. Mm. And it's also a lot of times the strategy that gets thrown at a trauma survivor by friends and family. Why can't you be like you were? Why can't you oh, snap. just like, yeah. So combat veterans, for instance, they come home very disrupted and just transitioning to civilian life. I mean, one way of expressing it, my good friend Jesse says, you go from a stud to a dud mm. and there's all kinds of missed connections and things going on in your head that don't fit that reality and people just want you to go back to who you were Mm. that is impossible it's really impossible Mm. and I think the beauty of a traumatized story with growth and reconstruction is it's the imprint the thumbprint if you will of God the gospel because that's what happens in the life of Jesus and I don't think he'd want to go back and do the first part over again. I think he probably would. And um, that's, okay, that's in brief. I can say a lot more of it. In brief, that's why I think it's not good to want to go back. I know we have the ideas about resilience and strength, and you should just be able to brush it off. No, no, that is not what the life of Jesus means to me. Mm. Oh, I love that. You're talking about the gifts of suffering. Yeah. So so the goal is not to go back to back to what was, back to quote unquote normal. Yeah. But but growth is available. Growth is, is attainable. Growth is something that that can come out. And I, I just remember briefly looking at that little little diagram, the chart that you had and, and the side, the right side, which was post the reconstruction, was actually higher in that hope, uh, that the, or the joy and misery scale. It was actually a little higher. There was more joy. Yes. That, that doesn't negate the sorrow that, that went through it, or that, that you went through in order to get to that point. No, not at all. And I suppose some could look at that graph and think that it's overly optimistic and that it's an exaggerated statement of possibility of growth and reconstruction but along the way there's question marks there's variables and those question marks to me are huge and as a therapist you you just see I know you see a lot of variety and uh, people can go one of two directions with trauma to more integrated sense of self or more disintegrated sense of self and some people are there for a long long time Mm-hmm. Um, some of my the favorite clients that came through the foundation were Vietnam guys mm-hmm. so a long long time mm-hmm. of disintegration and chaotic struggle mm-hmm. 
would you would you give let's say you're speaking to someone who is on that long Hmm. long journey i mean do you have any any last encouragement any anything to say specifically to them that, that feel like this is taking longer than i expected well it might be taking longer than other people but this is your path and you're the only one that can walk it and i would say like the early studies around dsm3 and post-vietnam there was a belief that it was a normal response to an abnormal amount of stress i really like that and i think Mm. it it's cliche i i suppose to say it's normalizing because Mm. it it's abnormal but it is comforting i think Mm -hmm. that your response is actually a human response to something that we were never meant to endure Mm. amen that's so good man dave thank you so much for sharing um just a teeny tiny fraction of what you could share with us today uh but i was really blessed and many levels so thank you for being with us today thank you for inviting me uh guys if you want to get that book he alluded to and we're also going to link to um that award-winning psalm book what's it called again the essential bible companion to the psalms uh, yeah the award was actually for following jesus man of sorrows okay well yeah. we're gonna link to both of those as well as the seven pillars of she will stay and so that is for the book that he alluded to the partners of trauma survivors um i've got my copy you should get yours and guys do you have your impossible marriage copy yet I have a coupon for you if you want one. You can go to intervarsity.com, look up Impossible Marriage, and do the code LOVE, as in love, <laughs> the number 3030, 30, and you'll get 30% off and free shipping. And so that's only until the pre-order time runs out, which is October 27. Then all of a sudden, it's just ordering. It's not pre anymore. It's just ordering. Okay, guys, we got a question of the week for next week. It's another random one. It's kind of like the mask story question, but this is about your water bottle. Everybody, doesn't everybody carry a water bottle around with them at this point? So what kind of water bottle carrier are you? Are you like the milk jug water bottle carrier? I feel like you have to definitely be in CrossFit if you're that person. Or like, Steve, you always have your yellow green cup with the straw. Are you a straw guy? Straw gal? Milk Yeti? Lots of Yetis these days. Everyone has the turquoise one that I have because that's the one you can get on Amazon. Okay, we want to hear from you. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, email us at podcast.lauricreek.com. Man, thank you again to Dave Beach. We loved having you. And for all of us here at the Hole in My Heart podcast, we will see you next week. Bye.